0: Hey, you found The Paulist, a daily comics analysis podcast. Uh, It's daily so that we can read widely, and it's analysis so that we can dig deep. I'm Paul. I'm a literacy researcher, uh, an English teacher, and you can find me on Twitter at 2ply, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. The Paulist is on Tumblr at com, And, of course, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Uh, please rate and review us. It helps us a lot to get the word out about what we're doing here. Um, glad that you could join us on Thursdays, uh, today being uh, uh, August, uh, September 1st, sorry, Uh we do our Thursday throwback where we talk about a comics classic. And in this case, we're talking about, um, Jack Kirby's new gods artist edition. Um, and, uh, and so let's dig deep, uh, August 28th was would have been jack kirby's 99th birthday and so the comics world celebrated the life and work of one of its legends um and i'm going to be talking about the uh, artist edition from idw of jack kirby's new gods uh before i go into that though um uh you know there's a another podcast called pop pop culture happy hour uh it's an npr podcast about pop culture uh they the hosts there talk about something called the zaxon rule or breaking the zaxon rule Zaxxon's like one of those um arcade video games that uh somebody talks about you know one of the guys uh on the podcast talks about having a zaxon machine and sharing his delight in that and then you know the point being that nobody else can enjoy that you know very few people in the world can have a zaxon machine and so um i i realize when i talk about an artist edition i'm talking about a, a kind of um a piece of comics enjoyment that let's say most most people can't enjoy um the artist editions if you don't know um uh published by idw uh dark horse also does these i think they call them uh something else um she's i'm blanking on what they are i i should know because i have a usagi ojembo um what is it called anyway <laughs> artifact edition no that's that's when they have not the whole story anyway um, these artist edi- editions are these massive uh, reprintings of um, basically uh, you know reproductions of original art of comics classics and so um, IDw puts them out as I said they are they cost a pretty penny uh, usually something upwards of a hundred dollars and um, uh you know you may ask how it is that um, this is now the third artist edition that I've talked about on this podcast. Uh, one is that, um, I, I spend a criminally high amount of money on comics, uh, <laughs> not actually criminally, totally legal, <laughs> but, um, the, 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 um, the, the way that I can afford them actually is kind of by diligently hunting for, um, sales. And I've been able to get all of my, uh, artist editions at Um, significant discounts because I'm always kind of looking for, you know, there was at one point a sale on in stock trades, sometimes midtown comics, um, you know, uh, puts, puts artist editions on sale. Um, And then, and then eBay, frankly, Um, I have a couple of them that I got for a really good price on eBay. They had some dings, um, but you could still fully enjoy what they have to offer. And what they have to offer are, um, you know, as I said, full sized or near full sized reproductions of, the original art, um, and staring at the original art of something like Jack Kirby's, you know, new gods is an experience in itself and something that I want to talk about. But I I want to say first a couple of things, a couple of qualifiers. Uh, I think that hopefully the enjoyment that you can get out of listening to this podcast does not require you to own an artist edition. Uh, I actually really want to talk about it mainly as a means of honoring, um, the man and his work. Um, and moreover, if you, um, I think if you want to enjoy jack kirby's work thankfully uh there's uh, a whole lot out there that you can look at uh one is that um uh tomorrows publishes a regular publication called jack kirby collector um there's one in england i think it's, that's based in england that's also uh that's called jack the jack kirby quarterly um and some of the many of those are reprinted or you can get them digitally from tomorrow's tw M-O-R-R-O-W-S. It occurs to me that they have the same two thing going on that I have in my uh, Twitter handle. Uh, (laughs) um, But You know, even if you don't do that, you can go to the library, you know, and uh, look for some of the volumes. uh, For for instance, some of the ones edited or put together by Mark Evanier, um, who worked with Kirby, um, who I'm going to talk, speak from a little bit later um, in this podcast. There's a Best of Simon and Kirby uh, book. There's a Kirby King of Comics volume that you should check out. Um, There's these Fourth World Omnibuses, Omnibuy, that um, reprint a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about today. Um, And of course, you know, Kirby's Marvel stuff and and his DC stuff is is everywhere. You can you can get it in in a lot of different places. Um, But I think it's so exciting and so characteristics of comics as a as a culture that we're now at a point where we um, honor and remember uh, Jack Kirby, that we um, have given the man the credit that, uh, you know, sort of always been been due, uh, but too late received for him. Um, the other thing that I want to say as a qualification is that I'm not a Jack Kirby scholar, um, as I, you know, as might be suggested by, um, the, you know, the fact that there is a, a regular periodical of just Jack Kirby <laughs> stuff for Jack Kirby aficionados. Uh, you know, there's a so, sort of this whole world of scholarship, you know, you go to any kind of like respectable con and there's going to be a panel of Jack Kirby scholars and collectors and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and so in talking about Kirby, um, I, I realized that I'm kind of, it's almost like I'm attending a ceremony or I'm invited to speak at a ceremony for a religion that I don't belong to. <laughs> uh, not that I'm not an adherent to um, the temple of King Kirby, just that I know that there are others who um, will probably take the things that I say and, and really be able to pick it apart. Um, but that's actually, again, part of the fun of being a comics fan is that we are all to some degree obsessives. Uh, many of us are, if you're listening to a podcast like this, you're probably, uh, I I hate to say this, this is actually an intervention and uh, I'm here to tell you that you are an obsessive. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, but the Temple of King Kirby, you know, I I, I don't think I'm a, um, I, I wouldn't call myself clergy. <laughs> uh, instead, I would nod to um, uh, somebody like Charles Hatfield, who I'll kind of quote at length later on, I think. Um, uh, somebody like Mark Evanier, who is, of course, a colleague of his, um, the the folks at Two Morrows um, and stuff like that. And I think what's amazing about, you know, all of this sort of attention is that, it is a, a demonstration of how comics fandom um, genuinely reveres the things, the people, the work that ought to be revered. Because uh, Jack Kirby utterly changed comics. Um, you know, you can you can sort of bracket that by saying he utterly changed American superhero comics. But I don't think you even need to. It may not even be fair to say that. Because in the wake of Jack Kirby, um, comics worldwide, you know, are all about... The, the sort of grandiose in the midst of the mundane. I mean, you watch, you know, these sort of like globally huge box office um, movies like Captain America Civil War, and that's that's Kirby, you know, that Captain America is the creation of Jack Kirby. And the ability finally for cinema to catch up with what comics do in putting together, you know, in sort of holding together this, uh, uh, you know, uh, t- notion of... of of vast superheroes of you know cataclysmic uh catastrophe being met by people with powers that are um, incomprehensible and utterly unscientific you know um but contained in these characters who are sort of wisecracking and dealing with the the um you know the sort of everyday relationship problems that uh, all of us humans contend with that kind of grandiosity and you know mundaneness all in a package I think are um, that quality of comics owes uh, quite a lot to to King Kirby and so uh, I think when you think about Kirby what's amazing about him is is that this here was a man who who lived without the recognition that was due for his genius for you know almost all but the last really sort of decade of his life and despite how obviously an enormously important and beloved his work has been through his whole career his his long-standing career from his like early work you know his his dc uh work on sandman through machine man just recently reprinted by marvel uh or you know his stuff with joe simon the boy commandos which i you know i have one of these uh these old uh collections of uh boy commandos by by joe simon and jack jack kirby volume one to Commandy you know, um, that he did for DC in his latter years or Captain America, as I said, through Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, you know, y- you, and not to mention the, the, the gigantic role, you know, sort of impossible to imagine the, the Marvel revolution, really, um, the Marvel age without Kirby. Um, but of course, you know, uh, what, what we may not think about or, maybe we ought to think about is is that you know he never really saw royalty payments for for all of this work that he created until really his last years you know that that for his whole life this man worked like a slave bent over his 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 art board you know until as as they would say like late in the morning you know into his latter years not having any much of a pension or, or, or certainly the respect of his peers but not the respect of society um, thanks to comics status in, in in the culture you know post worth them and, and so on you know and so when i look at a volume like um this artist's edition for the new gods what it represents to me is it represents you know new gods is uh, of course done by kirby at the time he had left marvel he was under contract with dc um he still under these massive editorial constraints but but at least um he had come to a point in his career where this this man who was just you know incredibly as i said a genius prolific, productive, um, uh, pushing on the frontiers, uh, you know, and yet incredibly humble and incredibly hardworking and incredibly, um, you you know, sort of filled, driven with integrity Um, and and therefore maybe never looking out for number one as he ought to have. Um, he, he, He finally was at least you know, free to make his own decision. He, he kind of resolved at this point in his career when he's doing New Gods that he's either going to get a full script and the writer will be credited as the writer or he's going to have command over all of the writing himself. And of course, um, with New Gods and um, Mr. Miracle and uh, all the stuff that's part of the fourth world that they call the fourth world for whatever reason, um, he finally had that. Uh, because you know he, he really wanted to finally to not work under the conditions where if he's going to be the storyteller he you know he, he is the storyteller uh, not beholden to um, somebody else coming in and uh, changing things by you know uh, utterly making con- uh, dialogue that contradicts the action on the page because uh, that's what he was as an artist he was a storyteller he's a cartoonist um, and, um, and and and, and you know i think so much of his work the other thing that sort of makes you revere and honor the man is to to realize that the stuff that he came out of you know he grew up kind of in in the ghettos you know immigrant parents scrappy life they lived in poverty they lived in tenements uh, he was in a gang as a kid you know uh, eventually even after becoming an artist and becoming a professional uh went off to to war as you know all men his age did and and it survived, but barely, uh, close to death as a result of war. You know, for the rest of his life, he, I guess, it would be what we now call PTSD. would wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares um, about about the war. Um, times in his life of just grinding poverty, and yet this was a man who would work. I mean, would produce a number of pages that we now think unfathomable. <laughs> you know you could be generous to an artist and still uh just this unthinkable uh, amount of productivity um for him and and not because it was easy or because he shortcutted his work i mean the amount of detail that's that's there in this in in the marvel age work that uh you get this picture of this man he's sort of this sort of short uh, but tough stocky guy you know um uh, as i said bent over the table um until four in the morning, just drawing and, um, and producing and producing and producing pages. Uh, and, and, not, and not because of some sort of vainglory, but because he wanted to put food on the table for his family, you know, uh, for his wife Roz and his kids. And, and always approaching all of this, his relationship to um, publishers who, who didn't treat him with respect, his relationship to Stan Lee and, and whomever, you know, with, with a sort of positivity and a hopefulness and a resilience against an industry that really kind of sucked him bone dry um, as he, he made these pages at this, these rates that no one could imagine or afford today. You know, and so when you're looking at these reproductions of these pages, you stare at them, you get a sense of, that grandeur, knowing that background, you know, and also that toughness in kind of every page and in every line. And, um, there's this, uh, there was this discussion in this, uh, shoot, I'm, I'm failing to cite, but there's a, um, art magazine, a fine art magazine that was taking up this discussion of, of Kirby, actually. And, um, uh, Charles Hatfield kind of writes about this. And one of the things that he argues is that, uh, what Kirby is, is he's a cartoonist. Um, and, we tend to think of cartoonist as a um, as a kind of diminishment of somebody as a fine artist, but but what that what Hatfield means is that in the service of storytelling, you know, uh, you know, you can you can kind of judge him as lowbrow for his bombast for for making superhero comics essentially, but the artistry of what he does in his storytelling, every bit of that is earned. You know, like just knowing how many comics the man made and the things that he lived through, you know, and and, it, and it's earned because he knows all the things that uh, a fine artist needs to know, you know, about space, about anatomy, about uh, a design, about, um, you know, everything. He, he he knew all the foundations, you know, he, he had all the bases, but then for the service of storytelling, for the service of comics, he cho- he chose to push on all of that and, you know. He, he, he's always on this frontier of storytelling and, and you know that it's earned because the dude literally, you know, put up his dukes as a kid, you know. He, he was like, you know, he literally survived not only the mean streets uh, not, uh, 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 of New York, I think he's from New York area or something like that, Brooklyn maybe, not only survived the battlefield of war, he survived being a freaking cartoonist in America in the 20th century, you know. and And so this remarkable man, uh that's why even though people look to his fantastic four or his thor you know that marvel period stuff that as his kind of his his great work some would say even his peak um uh i think to get to the heart of of jack kirby i, I like to look at stuff like this um as as Evanier tells it in uh king of comics um you know after all all the fallout with marvel after not receiving the recognition that he deserved he couldn't take his own grandson into a store without getting too upset because he would see a you know a hulk toy and know that um, while others were profiting off of his at least co-creation you know he, he wasn't he wasn't seeing any of the the credit or the um you know he was still worrying and fretting about providing for his family um and so to me when i look at the new gods you know this represents something this this is jack you know, this is Kirby. All of the florid dialogue, you know, that's his language, you know. The uh uh this is his storytelling kind of pushed to the outer outer reaches. And and you can see kind of the significance of what um what this work means to him and I think so fitting that um in some ways and there's some pretty extensive discussion about this, as I said among the um the, the Kirby aficionados, but but you you can understand, uh you know you can understand it's kind of fitting that um, uh, the story to kind of—he never got to end the story. You know, he never got to end the whole fourth world um, meta-story. Uh, the sort of, you know, able to compete with Star Wars-sized epic, the way that he intended to. Um, you know, part of it is that even though you know, sales weren't awesome uh, for his 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 books at DC at this period, they um, they were they were kind of middling, uh, according to some some statistics worked out by, by folks at the Jack Kirby collector. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, part of this is DC's experienced this declining sales at the time, as they jumped the cover price from 15 cents to 25 cents, which, you know, you think about it proportionally, it's a huge jump and, you know, maybe this, these books not being, not ending, uh, them cutting off, uh, Kirby when he's sort of at his finest in creating these, galaxies uh you know is is partly a result of uh the industry man the industry being the industry you know and then there's discussion of course about whether it is an unfinished story you got to do 100 hunger dogs later on um maybe he's f- telling a kind of ending in captain victory and and the galactic rangers um but yeah i mean all of this backstory to me <laughs> you know is is hanging around in the back of my head when i pick up um the artist edition of New Gods. And as I read it, um, and I, sh- I should say that I had only read s- sort of uh, bits and pieces of The New Gods before I got this artist edition, and-, and I should also explain that it reprints issues 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, and 8. So there's a little gap in the run, but you know it doesn't actually. The storytelling doesn't actually suffer too much. So um, you can kind of get all that is great. And and the other thing about reading the New Gods is that you always. This is um, you know this is uh, uh, Kirby introducing uh, Orion and Light Ray and uh, you know Apocalypse and uh, Dark Side and a lot of stuff. He's introducing a whole. (laughs) <laughs> a whole genesis, <laughs> yeah, that's the right word, a whole genesis, you know, a whole sort of like um, origin of universe all at once. And so the amount of things that he is um, sort of, uh, you know, featuring within the opening pages, uh, the sort of scale of what he's telling in this in this book is just kind of breathtaking. But I think what I keep having in mind as I'm reading these opening pages is that, you know, we're talking about Jack Kirby, we're talking about, you know, Galactus, you um, level stuff but we're also talking about jack kirby who with joe simon uh invented the romance comic genre (laughs) you know um kind of in the in his uh, almost uh pre going off to war life he and simon um saw a niche in the market recognized that hey over here in 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 books and in novels which you know he he sort of always looked to novels in his life for inspiration but over here in books and novels we have sci-fi and here in comics we have sci-fi they have crime we have crime but look they have romance and so um simon and, and and kirby put together romance comics um my date for my date for Hillman, uh, publishers, and then, you know, young romance. Um, and as Gil Cain said about their romance work, anyone can make a page interesting when they're blowing up planets or having a monster devour a city. Joe and Jack made it interesting when two people were just standing there having a quarrel or professing their love. And so once again, you know, there's the opening pages of New Gods uh, in in all of its sort of uh, full-size reproduced glorious splendor here um, has an, uh, b- begins with an epilogue. You know, there came a time, these are the famous kind of uh, uh, beginning lines, uh, the time when the old gods died, exclamation point, the brave died with the cunning, the noble perished, locked in battle with unleashed evil. It was the last day for them. An ancient era was passing in fiery Holocaust. And, you know, and then that opening splash page is pure Kirby. You know the crackle, the um, the robots, the uh, uh, you know the layout, the 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 dynamism. There's a dragon. You know, <laughs> like every character looks hyper, extending all of their their joints. Um, this is you know this is Kirby, and um and it's sort of universe scale, and it's glorious. Um. Yeah, and yet you go past those that opening epilogue. <laughs> you you meet Orion, and then you follow Orion uh, onto to New Genesis, and then all of a sudden uh, there's this dynamic between uh, Orion and um and uh, uh you know the um the High Father and um Orion and, and Light Ray, and you. <laughs> you start to just realize that the drama between these characters and all of their sort of tapping into the wall and introducing the mystery and the fact that Orion is um you know Met- Metron knows that Orion is dark Side's son all this stuff you know it's um yeah it just um it's romance played out in um, space opera you know, it, it, it's, it's the beginning of space opera you know it's space opera um, the opera side of it the soap opera side of it um, and you and you can kind of see again um, Kirby taking the grandiose and also fitting in the mundane and putting them together and knowing the dramatic tension that they create um, for for all of this to be about um fathers and sons and betrayal and trust and um and love and also um monsters <laughs> and galactic battles um yeah let's see another thing that stands out in this um artist edition is that um the first two issues were inked by um an inker named Vince Coletta and uh if you know kirby and you or you know that era of comics you know that vince coletta is a controversial figure um you know often an artist himself but um but became sort of the go-to inker um at at marvel and at dc um he most i think well known for working with kirby on thor um in in, in kirby's long run on um, but Coletta's controversial uh, because for many people he's kind of reviled. <laughs> he's kind of the worst, um, the worst Kirby inker, the worst inker of many things. In fact, I think I read somewhere. This might be in um, Jack Kirby collector somewhere that Steve Ditko tells a story that um, he'd pick up a comic and if it was he'd look at the front, you know, the the um, credits, and if it's Coletta he'd throw it in the trash. Uh, maybe that's not Ditko. I don't know if that attribution is right. But, you know, it, it was just people would be incredibly frustrated by Coletta. And um, one reason um, people feel like it's a kind of sacrilege, especially with Kirby, is that um, Coletta was fast. He was probably the the sort of, as I said, the go-to inker because he got it done and he got it done quickly. And he got it done with not without style. You know, he, he, he sort of had a very... Um, distinct, very readable, a very clear style, uh, tended to draw in these thin and feathered lines. And um, and in some ways, that did Kirby a lot of justice, Just uh, Kirby being this very, um, you know, uber dynamic and blocky sort of art, this very sort of um, fill every page with action and gesture and, and motion kind of artist. And so I think um, Stan Lee would, would sort of sick Coletta, that's not a fair... Language would pair Coletta with with Stan, with uh with Jack to moderate him a little bit, um, but Kirby, obviously a super um, kind person, was respectful and appreciative uh, uh, to Coletta, but um, seemed kind of ambivalent uh, in private, ambivalent at best, <laughs> um, and uh, and I think I think he even did voice some frustration to those kind of close to him because and, and probably most egregious of Coletta's um, tendencies was that he would actually erase stuff and just wipe stuff out like he would just decide that eh, I'm gonna remove this background stuff and uh, you know when you look at there, there's all these things online if you look at Vince Coletta of um, comparisons of the pencils and the inks and you can see that in the pencils you know there's There's somebody standing there in the back, and in the inks, that person disappeared. (laughs) Or all kinds of detail that disappears. Um, And, uh, you know, ultimately, what uh, after issue two, um, you know, you see in this collection, issue five, um, new inker, there's even a little tag. In fact, I think I should post some of this. I'll post some of this on the Tumblr page. Um, uh, But... New Inker, uh, Issue 5, the credits say, written, drawn, and edited by Jack Kirby. That, by the way, is itself a glorious sound for all those reasons that I just said. And then it says, and starring a new celestial with his ebony brush, Mike Royer. And, you know, it's a very kind kind of introduction to um, Royer as an inker. And I think it was worthy, Royer generally considered by many To be their favorite inker of kirby um and by the end of his life kirby would admit that probably his favorite inker of his own work um because royer was just hugely respectful of the kirby line of the kirby pencils uh of trying to retain as best as possible um with as much fidelity as possible what kirby was doing there on the pencils and so you know to imagine the experience of being jack kirby you know working until four in the morning on your drawing board um sort of bleeding your guts out onto this onto the page and then to have it inked by somebody that dc sort of keeps putting you with and to see stuff disappear. and then uh, this contrast to have uh, somebody come along who is you know downright reverential in the way that they um, respect your, your, your artistry on the pencils. Um, and so knowing some of this background, I read this I went to this art edi- artist edition intensely curious. Can you see the difference? In the pages you know can you see the difference as some people say that you can and just you know not even an artist edition a regular reproduction between the coletta inks and the um and the uh, uh, uh royer inks and you know looking at it i think i can say yes um <laughs> i mean if you had if i knew nothing about the this backstory and you know somebody told me can you find a point at which the art sort of changes or takes a leap i think spending you know both spending time with it and just kind of off of my gut i could have a sense that something was different as i said the sort of uh i don't know you know um uh i feel like um kirby is like atlanta hip-hop there's like thick beats and and the kind of thickness is is um i don't know diminished dwindled a little bit by um by coletta's finer line um, but it's sort of there's you know it the the um, first two issues yeah they look gorgeous I mean this is Jack Kirby you can't stop that but um, you get to issue five and you get to the Royer inks and there's just almost like this it's almost like someone turned up the volume somebody turned up the bass and it sort of thumps with that that kind of um, Kirby energy uh, much more as if it's something unbridled um, um, and you know to be fair to Coletta you know he, he you know he i think he's exactly he's doing his job basically you know this is the exigencies of the comics making business because as much you know respect as as Mr. Coletta might have had for Kirby you know as much as they had the successful thor run together he he he's got to ink to a deadline and he's inking he's not inking jack king kirby he's inking just another artist, you know, just another man in the biz, you know, he he doesn't approach these pages with the kind of like, oh, how can you not, uh, you know, faithfully render the, the work of Jack Kirby, you know, uh, it's, and, and, and he's doing his thing, you know, um, but I think that again, reminds me that, you know, as I look at this work, that sometimes, especially with stuff that's classic, we sort of, Um, cover it with a sheen of of awe and we forget that this is just the back and forth of some some folks you know this is why sean howe's book is so interesting you know uh, about marvel it's the back and forth of some folks who are just trying to make a living trying to get through the day Um, and yet you look at the coletta stuff i mean there are blotches of whiteout that are very visible there's places where you can see erased pencil i'll see if i can take some good pictures of these and uh share them on the tumblr page but um you can see places where it seems like um the crackle loses a little bit of its crackle in fact there's these pl- areas where um, it seems like he took the shortcut of just kind of where you can imagine kirby's pencils having great subtlety and and maybe um a gradient in for instance these like Pa-pa! lines coming out of something you know um Col- coletta has sort of inked it bluntly and then used white out <laughs> to create, you know, white dots rather than the sort of sparkling stars that, um, that Kirby renders. Um, but you get to the, um, the Royer work, the Royer inks and yeah, there's occasional white out, but it's almost like, n- nah, you know, actually there's not much. There's actually just a lot of what looks to be a very attentive focus to, to, uh, preserving a look that I think we now associate with Kirby you know of the very sort of Kirby that that little uh wavy line that sort of makes me- something metallic sheen uh the kind of uh blotches of black that are um uh, unerring and sort of you know uh, bold you know um this is this is Kirby as as we envision Kirby at his best um and so um i guess i i think the relationship of these two inkers and the fact of you know having had uh coletta at the outset even if it weren't his first choice is is an interesting reflection of the situation um for, for jack kirby at this stage again as i said working under the thumb of dc um still having to prove himself which is sort of a ridiculous idea that he has to prove himself um but um Charles Hatfield writes about the two inkers in relation to Kirby as an artist and where he is in his career in in the book Hand of Fire um, which is his sort of academic book which is great about Jack Kirby um if you are and an, at least in the mildest um interested by what I've talked about I encourage you to get Evanier's books they're pretty accessible but I think Hatfield's book is um for those who want to dig deep. And so um, apologies for this. I'm going to read um, kind of at length. This is from page 182 of Hand of Fire. He says, thus the fourth world as a whole does not quite coalesce. It lacks the consistency to which today's graphic novels aspire, or even that of Kirby and Lee's Fantastic Four at its peak. And though the, the fourth world presaged the, presaged the graphic novel ideal, it was not created under a production model that could have given it coherence. What it does possess, in retrospect, is sheer mad energy, a deluge of ideas and a mind-rattling intensity of execution. Um, I think that is, uh, this is me now talking about Hatfield, I think that is really eloquently put, um, that there is this um, energy that uh, bursts from these pages. Um, and, and it's sort of like one idea after another that seems like he's been storing up his whole life and can't wait to put together into this world, uh, That these, these worlds that he's introducing. Um, to continue with Hatfield, it also boasts remarkable graphic power. In monstrous beauty, if not consistency of finish, the drawing in the fourth world marks a leap for Kirby as an artist, partly, perhaps partly because his increased editorial control allowed him to chase after ever more bizarre and pregnant imagery. In other words, his narrative drawing hurtled forward because the narrative and graphic dimensions stimulated each other. From this reader's point of view, this is Hatfield, a change in inkers also proved salutary. Starting from New Gods, number five, the inconsistent and at times slapdash Vince Coletta was replaced on all titles except Jimmy Olsen by a younger, lesser known inker and letterer, Mike Royer, who brought a a bolder, more fluid brush line in contrast to Coletta's fussy pen technique. Um, I'm gonna skip over a little bit where he talks about Coletta, um, and then he sort of transitions into talking about Royer, but to really get at Kirby, actually, um, and he says, uh, "Yeah, oh, these. This is better. I should have just read this instead of everything that I said for the last preceding half hour." But he says, um, uh, New, "New Gods, New Gods Five marks an." Immediate and to readers at the time probably shocking change in rendering with a more voluptuous line deeper blacks and more severe yet also more vibrant display lettering now fully integrated into the drawings um Royer was slicker than Coletta began his career assisting Russ Manning um etc etc um and then Kirby's work with Royer, this is Hatfield, like his work with everyone else was not consistent, nor did it improve past 1973. However, Royer was crucial because he helped Kirby toward an aesthetic that can be seen threatening to emerge in his late 60s Marvel work, but that fully arrives in the fourth world. This aesthetic, the late Kirby style, gels in the company of two inkers, the first being Joe Sinnott. on uh, Fantastic Four, whose original brief, like Coletta's, was to soften, shape, and discipline Kirby's drawing. He did, with an elegant, liquid line, though over time he began to allow more of Kirby's unvarnished qualities to uh, show through. Uh, The second was Royer, under whom Kirby's trademark ticks of style, already apparent in comics like Fantastic Four and Thor, hardened into an eccentric graphic language, imitable, close to self-parody, as is any sufficiently intense form of artistic expression, and indeed constantly parodied in comics even now. This is of more cosmetic interest because these Inkers, the best of Kirby's late career, responded to Kirby's strivings and to the changes in his style and Kirby in turn in turn seems to have come closer to finding what he wanted when working with these two Royal Royer in particular. This is the part now. Thank you for indulging this long reading. The fourth world, which even under Coletta boasts some of the most electrifying pages in Kirby's career, blossomed under Royer into a work of violent and outrageous beauty, taking Kirby to another level. In fact, the Kirby-Royer period from roughly mid-1971 to early 73, stands as a high-water mark for Kirby's art. The present-day appreciation of Kirby as an outsider artist or primitivist testifies to the importance of this period. If Fourth World is not a a neatly finished masterwork, it was still a watershed for Kirby and for comics. And the wonder of it is that despite its influence, it retains its eccentricity, its irreducible individuality. Simply put, it is as personal a project as Kirby was ever to pursue in his long career. Besides sheer vigor and splendid graphic execution, the saga exhibits three other qualities that set it apart from its forebears in superhero comics. One, the originality and later influence of its overall premise. Two, the originality of its numerous secondary inventions, many of which are not simply gimmicks, but potent metaphors, mother box. And three, of course, its fervent presentation of Kirby's values, courtesy of an obvious ideological subtext, if indeed subtext is the right word, and a hopeful, if sometimes clumsy, treatment of youth and youth culture. I think um, Hatfield captures well how the art, and especially in, in, in coupled with Royer's inks, but... Um, how the art of Kirby in this book um, relates the overall effect of reading Kirby. You know, this the, the to me the effect of reading this artist edition is, you know, here is Kirby's Kirby's grandeur, sort of his you know universe-sized imagination and um, and idealism, printed large in the original art. You know, so that it combines the the effect of the awe of you know, staring at reproductions, but staring at Kirby originals and the awe of the magnitude of the story. But also, also at the same time, you look at this original art, you look at Whiteout, you look at little notes written in the, you know, in the sides of the page and you picture it's 11 p.m. and Kirby's still at the table and Roz has, you know, put the kids to bed. Actually, I think the kids are probably too old at that point. But anyway, <laughs> and, and here's this scrappy little artist Still fighting for a paycheck to live his fa- lift his family out of poverty, you know, and he's still scribbling away on these pages at this Kirby crackle at these million, you know, like busy details, these lines that uh, convey all this motion and action. And, you know, you realize that it's not just that Jack Kirby made superheroes a combination of the grandiose and the mundane, that he is himself basically a superhero. Of the grandiose and the mundane together, you know that that to me speaks to why you know the the hero initiative and and the Kirby for hero stuff, um, which you can Google and find out about, um, means so much um, and means so much to comics and and to and to the arts uh, to American culture. Um, Evanier tells the story of um, how you know Kirby loved and cherished, uh, even though was not totally satisfied with all this fourth world stuff and how it all wound up um, resolving. And they would reprint it, you know, there was a sort of a run where where um, he was able to reprint and add some new stuff, uh, Paul Levitz and, and, and Jeanette Kahn really making it possible for him to um, earn some royalties and stuff like that on the work. Um, but uh, sort of still never took off, never got the readership and respect that i think he still felt like it deserved um and uh uh, you know this really poignant part of Evanier's book kirby king of comics um says that in september of 1995 uh this is after jack has already passed away um bowing to pressures within and also from outside the company Executives at Marvel granted her a modest pension, enough to cover the mortgage, groceries, and medical expenses, with a few dollars left over to the bank. Informed that it would expire when she died, Uh, it would expire when she did, (laughs) she vowed to live forever and to get as much as she could out of the firm. Roz did her best, but on the day she died, December 22, 1998, she only managed to drain Marvel of about 27 months' worth of pension checks. That was one week after a friend visiting the D.C. offices called to tell her that the fourth world reprints, uh, they recently decided to reprint all the fourth world stuff were selling. Well, she began crying and said, finally, it's a hit. Um, then she sighed and added, well, Jack always said it would be, uh, I think that's incredibly poignant. Um, Ross, who is this amazing woman, um, it seems by all accounts. Um, finally, uh, getting to see the satisfaction of seeing this work um, receiving the recognition uh, and, and Jack Kirby receiving the recognition due. So um, yeah. So this has been my brief dip into the the uh, church of Jack Kirby <laughs> and the New Gods Artist Edition from IDW. I should credit the um, people who put this together. Um, I'm going to open the credits page because I'm, I apologize. I forgot their names, but um, uh, uh, Randall Dulk is the name of the designer and Scott Dunbeer from IDW edited the book. I think they're from IDW. Yeah. So yeah. So that's been um, the Paulist on our Thursday throwback. Join us tomorrow. I'm going to talk. On, and now for something completely different, I'm going to talk about um, Sunny Side Up um, from Graphics, Scholastic by um, Matthew and Jennifer Holm in our Friday family um, comic. And then on Saturday, our Saturday smaller press book is going to be, um, what is it? Handbook by Kevin Budnick, B-U-D-N-I-K. So go find it, buy it, check it out, read it, and read it with me. Um, And let's keep reading, okay? Thanks.